Awesome. Come on, I just believe in the power of prayer. I just do. The older I get, the shorter my prayers become. Because the more in awe I am of a God who is not impressed by length of prayer, but authenticity of prayer. I think sometimes we think we can out-talk God. Get him so bored with our long speeches that somehow he just gives in. But I think God responds to the broken and to the contrite. He responds to the lowly and to the humble. And so we're just going to believe today by God's spirit, he is working in phenomenal ways in that part of the world and that we're going to see an end to conflict even this week. And so let's keep praying in that direction and let's continue to believe for God's best and remember our Christians, brothers and sisters around the world. You know, sometimes being in the West, it's so easy to think of just the bubble that we're in here. But can I tell you, man, there are billions of Christians around the world. Some of them are a part of different traditions, like Orthodox. Some of them are in churches that they don't have the same worship style as us, or maybe they don't have the same preaching style or clothing style as us, but there are united prayers now from around the world. People are rallying in a way that I've never seen before. And they're praying, they're praying, they're praying. Remember, friend, only a united church can heal divided nations. And when the church gathers in unity, it, there is nothing that's impossible for them to do. And so we're just believing God for better days ahead and for an end to the conflict in that region. This morning, I'm going to share with you out of the book of Psalms, chapter 92. The book of Psalms, in a lot of ways, is the hymn book for the nation of Israel. It is still used by the Jewish people around the world today. Different Psalms are sung on different days to commemorate different things. And uh, the book of Psalms, largely authored by David, but also other people contributed. They really tell the story of God's faithfulness, God's character, even God's personality. And they help us stand in awe of the beauty and the brilliance of God. That's why David is such a captivating figure in scripture. He's the warrior king whose heart is still soft to the presence of God. Which means, friend, you can be the most manly man in the world and still have a soft heart to the things of God. Sometimes we think masculinity and then being sensitive to God's presence are on opposite ends of the spectrum. I think the strongest man or the strongest woman is the person who's most sensitive to the leading of God's spirit. And David is the warrior king, reigning over Israel for 40 years. And yet he dances wildly in the presence of God. I love that. In Psalms 92, he helps capture the essence of the Christian life. And I believe it reveals some important principles for you and for me today. So we're going to explore this chapter together this morning. Psalms 92, starting in verse 1. I love this. Watch how David starts this proclamation. It is good to praise the Lord. It is good to make music to your name, O Most High, proclaiming your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. It is good to praise the Lord. This was known in the Jewish custom as a Sabbath song. It was sung every week when the Hebrew children would rest from their labor by taking a day off and dedicating it unto the Lord. Friend, in a world gone mad, it's an act of spiritual warfare to develop the regular habit of praising the Lord and thanking God for his goodness in your life. 
I want you to remember this morning, if it's not good, it simply means that God's not done. But as believers, we're not waiting for life to be good in order to worship the God who is good. For it's one thing to praise after I get my victory, but it's an entire other thing to praise in the hallway of my testing on the way to my victory. I love how David is making a statement of truth. He's using the word goodness, which is a transcendent value, just like beauty. And he's saying, it is good to praise the Lord. Yeah, I had somebody a few months ago, they were trying to give me a compliment, but it rubbed me the wrong way. They said, they said, Pastor, when I come to church, I try to time it perfectly so I can get there at the end of worship because I just really want to hear the word. And I thought, hey, I appreciate the compliment, but it's worship that breaks up the heart of stone, gives you a heart of flesh so that the seed of the word can be planted in the soil of your heart. We enter into his gates, not with the preaching of the word, but with thanksgiving and praise. Now the preaching of the word is important because how can you have faith unless you have heard? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. I believe in preaching, I preach for a living. I really think that we've got decent preaching in this house, but I'm telling you, until you come into his course with thanksgiving and praise first, you're a trespasser on God's property. And David just takes a step back from the narrative of life and says, oh, it is good to praise the Lord. Listen, Fred, you need a Sabbath in your life. Hear me, you need a day of rest, reflection, praise, testimony, encouragement, rejuvenation, because God can do more in your resting than you can do in your working. In Exodus 14, Moses says this, the Lord will fight for you. You need to only be still. Psalms 46, David says, be still and know that I am God. Psalm 62, yes, my soul finds rest in God. My hope comes from him. Isaiah 40, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Sabbath gets its start in creation. Remember, God creates the heavens and the earth in six days, and on the seventh, he rested. He rested to model behavior to those who were created in his image, not because he was tired, but because he was illustrating the principle of dedicating a day unto the Lord. Sabbath is not, I'm tired, so therefore I need a nap. Sabbath is, I'm trusting that God is working even when I'm not. For unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers build in vain. Unless the Lord watches the city, the watchmen watch in vain. There comes a time in your life where you've done everything you know how to do. You've had every conversation you know how to have. You knocked on about every door you know how to knock on, and now it's God's turn to finish the work. Sabbath says, I trust God with the outcomes. Sabbath says, not by my might, nor by my strength, but by your spirit alone. Sabbath said, God is not slack concerning his promises. Sabbath says, I know my redeemer lives and in the end he will stand on the earth. Sabbath says, my God will supply. Sabbath says, I don't have to figure it out because God's got it under control. Hear me, friend. Busyness is an idol in the West because the God we serve is mammon. Sabbath is spiritual war against the lie that busyness makes you valuable. No, friend, you have value because of Christ's work, not because of yours. If he is the God who does not sleep, nor does he slumber, then let him stay up all night figuring it out. For the scripture says he gives his saints rest. 
And I like what Dr. Exel once said, when the heart is thankful for past mercies, new mercies are not far away. This psalm not only recited on the Sabbath, but was commonly recited during the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was one of three pilgrimage feasts, which means this, all the Jews from around the world would pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate together. The Feast of Tabernacles, sometimes called the Feast of Booths, would be where the people of God would construct makeshift tents and live in them for a week at a time to reflect on and remember the goodness of God and the supply of God when the Hebrew children were in the wilderness for 40 years. And according to the rabbinical literature and tradition, it was said that when the Messiah appeared, he would make his appearance at the Feast of Tabernacles. Watch this, John 7. On the last day, the great day of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood up and cried out, saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water, which means Jesus, the Messiah, shows up in the middle of a festival where his people are celebrating rest. And he's saying, come unto me, all who are heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come unto me, all who are under a yoke of bondage, and I will break it off of your neck. Jesus shows up in the middle of a festival celebrating rest and says, I am the fulfillment of everything that you've desired. And if you will simply cast your cares on me for I care for you. Not only will you have temporary rest, you will have eternal rest. In verse four, David goes on to say this, for you make me glad by your deeds. Therefore, I will triumph in the works of your hands. How great are your works, Lord, and how profound are your thoughts. And let me ask you a question. How do we fulfill the scriptural command to rejoice always and pray without ceasing? I think it's got a lot more to do with the attitude of my spirit than it does the length of my prayers. And the attitude of your spirit is directly related to the focus of your life. Here's my conviction. I'm gonna focus on what God is doing instead of complaining about what he isn't doing. For in fact, my triumph is in his works. My confidence is in his abilities. My security is in his track record. The one who founded the earth and establish the heavens, has his eyes on me, and that's enough. In fact, even Jesus says this to his disciples. If God sees even the sparrow who falls out of the tree, how much more are his eyes on you? In fact, the first time God ever receives a name in the Old Testament, it's Abraham's maidservant who is sent away into the wilderness. And God shows up to her in the desert and she said, this is the God who sees me. Can I tell you, friend, there is a great confidence in our Christian faith when you recognize that God doesn't see you as a number. He doesn't see you as a face in a sea of crowds. He doesn't see you just as a robot that rolled off the assembly line. He sees you as a unique individual. He has numbered the hairs on your head and the days of your life. He knows when you rise. He knows when you rest. He knows your end and your beginning. And he is the author and finisher. And if it's not good, it's not done. 
And this is why David is reflecting on the greatness of God. How good it is to praise the Lord. My triumph is in your works. My confidence is in what you have established. I like something Dr. Havel once said, hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something is worth doing no matter how it turns out. Following Jesus is worth doing, even if the journey is more difficult than you imagined. Staying faithful to God is worth doing, even if it costs you more than you previously thought. Our hope is rooted in heaven's perspective, in heaven's outcome, not in earth's temporary difficulties. In verse six, David goes on to say this, senseless people do not know. Fools do not understand that though the wicked spring up like grass and all evildoers flourish, they will be destroyed forever. Watch. For surely your enemies, Lord, surely your enemies will perish and all evildoers will be scattered. Friend, don't ever be dismayed by the temporary victory of God's enemies. For in the final estimation of things, God himself will balance the books of history. You know why you don't have to get even? Because God is the judge of the nations. It's so interesting to me. Sometimes people take the success of evil people as a sign that God isn't real or isn't as powerful as he claims. But my Bible says the rain falls on the just and the unjust, which means this, I'm not living for temporary pleasure, but instead eternal victory. And David says the wicked spring up like grass, but they will be destroyed forever. For it doesn't matter how fast you grow. If your roots aren't deep, you're just one disappointment from fading away. See, the world is impressed with overnight success, but God is impressed with long-term success. The world is impressed with flashy and fake, but God is impressed with genuine and humble. The world is impressed with fame and fortune. God is impressed with faithful and consistent. Give me a man or a woman who will burn consistently for God their whole life over a person who will burn bright and then burn out any day of the week. Watch what Jesus says in John 15. I love this. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that not only should you bear fruit, but that your fruit should remain. And that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. I love this. Sometimes when I hear people share their testimonies, I've even been guilty of this. And I know what you're saying, but sometimes we'll say things like this, when I found God. Friend, you didn't find God. God found you. He's the one who leaves the 99 to go searching after the one. And not only did God find you, but from the foundations of the earth, before you was ever born, he has appointed you to bear fruit. Not just bear fruit, but bear fruit that remains. Can I tell you sometimes the most accurate depiction of faithfulness is a believer who has reached the end of their rope, tied a knot and hung on because they are more stubborn than life is difficult. Man, we need a spiritual resilience in the church today like I have never seen before. If there's anything the last 18 to 24 months has done, it has tested the resilience of the church. Will we be those who remain? I'm reminded of a conversation that Jesus has with the crowds 
as he's talking in an analogous way about his death and resurrection. He says things like this, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot be my disciple. And the Bible says the crowds desert him. They leave. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, will you leave also? And here's how they respond. Where else are we going to go? Only you have the words of life. To me, I look at that as a depiction of what it means to be faithful. It doesn't mean you always get it right. It doesn't mean you have it all figured out. It doesn't mean that you don't have bumps and bruises and damage from the journey you've been on. It doesn't mean that you don't ever make a mistake. It doesn't mean that you don't ever have a second look at the life that you used to live. It means that even after you've fallen down, you're gonna get back up, you're gonna keep your eyes on Zion, and you're gonna march in the direction that he's called you to. Because even though a man makes plans, the Lord directs his steps. And sometimes we make faithfulness or a testimony about all of the kind of great things and moments of faith in our life where we've always overcome. But I love how David talks about the testimony of a person who follows hard after God. I haven't always gotten it right. I've made a lot of mistakes, but I was young and now I'm old. God's people are never forsaken. The righteous never go hungry. And we need that type of faith in this type of hour. In fact, I don't believe that God creates conflict. I don't believe that God creates trauma. He's the author of life. But if you let him, God will use it. And God has used the last 24 months in our culture to solidify and strengthen the church, those who remain. We are living for that well done, good and faithful servant, which means it's not enough to just have an experience at the altar. It's not enough just to occupy a seat until Christ returns. I've got a mandate on my life to bear fruit and to have fruit that remains. That only comes by virtue of you being connected to the vine. If he is in you and you are in him, you will bear fruit that remains. And for us, that's the high call of God in this hour. Watch what he goes on to say. I love this. Verse 10. You have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. Fine oils have been poured on me. David was anointed 15 years before he assumed the throne to be king. Hear me, friend, anointing doesn't bypass process, it binds you to it. Anointing doesn't announce a conclusion, it prepares you for the journey. Anointing doesn't skip development, it inspires development. And you need the anointing of the Holy Spirit in your life more than you've ever needed it before. You need the anointing of God just to make it to Walmart on a Monday morning. You need the anointing of God to stand and after you've done everything to stand, continue to stand. Having the anointing of the Holy Spirit is no longer optional for believers in the 21st century. It is the missing ingredient in the church today. We need people who honor the third person of the triune Godhead and say, God, I'm not just here to have religious knowledge in my head, but an experience and an encounter in my heart. I need the anointing of the Holy Spirit in my life. Watch, David was anointed three times before he became king. Why should I keep coming back to the altar? Why should I keep coming to church? 
Why should I keep praying or intercessing for that need? Because anointing isn't an event. It's a lifestyle of being empowered by the Spirit for the calling that's on our lives. If David needed it, if Samuel needed it, if Jesus needed it, I would dare to say we need it today. In the first publicly recorded sermon of Christ in Luke 4, this is how Jesus starts. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. I think that's one of the critical failures of the information age that we're in. A lot of people have platforms, but not very many people have anointing. That's why Paul tells Timothy, he says, you have many teachers, but you have few fathers. Oh, there's a difference between just teaching. I can, you can have somebody recite the Greek and Hebrew forwards and backwards and upside down. You can have all the information and all of the degrees that the world confers, but until you've had an encounter with an anointing, you're a sail without wind, you're a wineskin without wine, you ain't anointed, you're just annoying. Yeah, we need people with an encounter with God's spirit. Hear me, I'm not the best preacher in this church. I'm not the most qualified pastor in this region. I'm definitely not the smartest person in the room. But I have been called by God, set apart by the elders, empowered by his spirit, and anointed to lead in this hour. And the anointing is what overcomes every objection of man and attack from the enemy. Watch what the apostle John says in 1 John 2. He says, as for you... The anointing which you've received from him dwells in you. The art of spiritual leadership is not just in the accumulation of information, but instead the impartation of God's heart to his people. I tell preachers, if you can't hit oil after 10 minutes, quit digging. And I would dare to say that many of you are in this room by virtue of crossing over the threshold of these front doors and sensing something you haven't sensed in a long time. I would just venture to say that some of you are here this morning because you showed up and you thought, man, this feels like the good old days, but just better. I think some of you showed up and recognized that the waters are being stirred. Yeah, it looks a little untraditional. Yeah, it looks a little unorthodox. I know I don't look like the normal preacher that maybe you grew up with, but for whatever reason, the anointing of God's spirit doesn't just visit here. It dwells in this house and people who experience it are transformed for all of eternity. And I'm just telling you, the only hope for the church in the West is not more information. It is not more theology. It is not more books read. It is when Christian men and women have an encounter that marks them for all of eternity. And when you have tasted and seen that God is good, you never, never, never can go back. I want you to know this is possible. It's not just possible at a yearly conference. It's not just possible when your favorite preacher is in town. It's not just possible when your favorite song is being played. You have an anointing that dwells inside of you and you have been anointed for life and life more abundantly. And there's a lot of things we get wrong, but the one thing we get right is that we have a desperate pursuit for the presence of God. And when we get the presence, we get everything else. But we've had churches get everything else but miss the presence. You can have all the programs, 
the best lights and the fanciest teaching and you can have all the great community events but without an anointing that abides you're missing the very purpose for which you were created that you would hold and display and export the glory of God which resides within no you were created for this friend don't just visit revival to go live in religion. Live in an outpouring of God's spirit until the Northwest is filled with the glory of God. Watch verse 12. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon. Watch. Planted in the house of the Lord. Not visiting the house of the Lord planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green, proclaiming the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no wickedness in him. I want you to know today, if you still got a heartbeat in your chest, you still got a pulse in your neck, and don't matter what your age is, you're going to bear fruit. Your best days are not behind you. They're ahead of you. And you got a part to play in what God God is doing next, not just in Snohomish or Seattle, but all across this nation. Because my Bible says in the last days, God will pour out a spirit on young and on old, on men servants and on maid servants, on young men and on young women. We live in the age of outpouring and it is no respecter of person, no respecter of gender, no respecter of salary, no respecter of status. It is all who are thirsty, come and drink. Now watch, watch, I'm in here. It says the righteous will flourish like a palm tree. I love this. Now we live in a region where you don't see many palm trees, but there's something unique about a palm tree. Palm trees have some of the deepest roots of any tree known to man. It's considered one of the toughest plants. On a routine basis, their roots go down into the ground for hundreds or even thousands of feet. Watch this. Some researchers have even found roots that go three to four miles beneath the surface. Deeply rooted. They keep growing and they keep searching until they find living water. They won't give up until they tap into a source that feeds it the necessary nutrients to grow big and tall and strong. They keep searching. They keep showing up. They refuse to give up on their journey. They refuse to get hurt. They refuse to cower away. They refuse to not have fellowship. They, 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 they refuse to do life alone. They grow them roots until they find what is necessary to withstand what is coming. Not only that, but palm trees survive the scrapes of life. Man, you can cut a palm tree, but it's pretty hard to kill it. Most trees can be killed by scraping off a ring of bark around the trunk of the tree. That's because the bark holds in the nutrition. But the palm tree is different. They are nourished from deep within the core of the trunk, and they can survive many cuts and scrapes. Not only that, but palm trees bend, but they don't break. When the strong winds come, the palm tree's root system is not weakened, it's actually strengthened. When the wind blows hard on a palm tree, the roots stretch and grow stronger. The stronger the wind, the further it bends. Palm trees can bend all the way over, but when the wind is done, they stand right back 
up. Come on, friend, that's a prophetic picture for somebody in this room today. The storms of life have done everything they can over the last year to take you out. They've done everything they can to sow seeds of discord in your family. They've done everything they can to attack your mental health or your physical health. The storms have raged, but if you got a root system connected to living water that comes from the throne, not only will you survive in the midst of a storm, friend, you will thrive and you're gonna stand up taller than you've ever stood before. That's why it's good to praise the Lord. We have that type of God, and we are gonna be this type of people, like a palm tree planted in the house of God. Watch, flourishing in the courts of our God. That's our opportunity in this hour. That's the type of people we're gonna be. Come on, would you stand with me as we close? Let me pray for you. Let me encourage you in the Lord. Friend, today is not the day to give up. Today is the day to reconsecrate yourself unto the Lord. Oh, when the enemy comes in like a flood, God's gonna raise up a standard right inside of you. This is not your day to give up. This is your day to stand strong and stand tall for the God of the universe will work on your behalf. Father, now in the mighty name of Jesus, we ask that you would strengthen us from within. I declare over your life, friend, a spiritual resilience. You will not give up in your moment of trial. You will not give up in your moment of tribulation. You will be planted in the house of the Lord. You will flourish in the courts of our God. You will be a person who gives all praise and honor and glory unto the maker of heaven and earth. You will be an individual who's anointed by his spirit for the mission of God that is at hand. And may the God who begun a good work bring every one of those good works to faithful completion in and through your life in the mighty name of Jesus. Come on, all God's people said amen. 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 Friend, if you're here today and you need prayer, I want you to make your way to these altars. I'd love to add my faith to yours to see God do a miracle in your life. If not, God bless. I want to thank you for coming today. God is doing something incredible in the Northwest. Come on, invite a friend. We'll see you next week. God bless.